0: Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Dempster, I'm the director of the Melbourne Writers' Festival and I'm so excited to be here at the Sydney Opera House this afternoon for this Festival of Dangerous Ideas event with Laurie Penny. Laurie Penny I'm sure needs no introduction to this audience, she's a feminist, journalist and author <laughs> whose books include Unspeakable Things, cyber Sexism, and Meat Market. She writes and speaks on social justice, pop culture, gender issues and digital politics for numerous news sources including The Guardian, The New York Times, Vice and Salon. Today, Laurie Penny will be talking about lost boys. The restrictive gender norms women have fought against are just as constraining for men. But giving up male privilege is not easy or painless. Do men see such a difficult and uncomfortable process as worth it, even if the result would be a better and fairer world for all? Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Laurie Penny.
1: Oh, gosh, it's bright. Thanks, everyone. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a short, a piece from a chapter of my book called Lost Boys, and uh, then we're going to do some Q&A and uh, get to the real meat of the stuff. And um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and their elders past and present and their ongoing struggles for justice. So, thank you. (laughs) Right. Right. For many centuries, Money, power, and the ability to create large amounts of random bloody carnage have been concentrated in the hands of a few men, usually white men, usually European men, and usually the richest and the most well-connected. Between them, these men represent only a fraction of the total male population, and yet every man and boy is expected to aspire to be just like them, and every woman is expected to aspire to be in their company. There's a simple word for this system. The word is patriarchy. Patriarchy does not mean the rule of men. It means the rule of fathers. Literally, the rule of powerful heads of household over everybody else in society. Men further down the chain have always been expected to be content with having power over women in order to make up for their lack of control over the rest of their lives. The word patriarchy is a particularly hard one to hear, describing, as it does, a structure of economic and sexual oppression centuries old, in which only a few men were granted power. Patriarchy, not the rule of men, but the rule of fathers and of father figures. Most individual men do not rule very much, and they never have. Most individual men don't have a lot of power, and now the small amount of social and sexual superiority they held over women is being questioned. And that's got a sting. Benefiting from patriarchy doesn't make you a bad person, although it does very little to help you be a better one. The test of character, as with everyone who finds themselves in a position of power over others, is what you do with that realisation. Patriarchy, through most of human history, is what has oppressed and constrained men and boys, as well as women. Patriarchy is a top-down system of male dominance that is established with violence or with the threat of violence. When feminists say patriarchy hurts men too, this is what we really mean. Patriarchy is painful and violent and hard for men to opt out of and bound up with the economic and class system of capitalism. I found that when I speak to men about gender and violence, the word patriarchy is one of the hardest for them to hear. Modern economics creates few winners. So a lot of men are left feeling like losers. And a loser is the last thing a man is supposed to be. Losers aren't real men, desirable men, strong men. And if if neoliberalism is creating more losers, it must be because men aren't being properly appreciated. And it's probably the fault of feminism and not fiscal management. (laughs) Neoliberalism may have set up vast swathes of people to fail, but the real problem isn't allowed to be a crisis of capitalism, so it has to be a crisis of gender. Across the global, global North and South, people are realizing how they've been cheated of social, financial, and personal power by their elected representatives and unelected elites, but young men still learn that their identity and virility depends on being powerful. What I hear most from the men and boys who contact me is that they feel less powerful than they expected to be and they don't know who to blame. The great obstacle... Nope, not yet. (laughs) I'll tell you when. (laughs) The great obstacle to women's progress is not men's hate, but their fear. The men's rights activists, who organise to drown out and silence women on the internet, are usually fearful, lonely creatures who are desperate to speak about gender, but are only able to do so in the context of shutting women down. That expression of fear comes from a profoundly childish place, a posture which is as fascist in its policing of gender roles as a playground bully, but which uses words like feminazi with apparent seriousness because fighting for equality is what the Nazis were known for. <laughs> it is as if by talking about the hurt that women experience, often just because we are women, we are somehow preventing men from speaking about the painful pressures of masculinity. Interestingly for many men, the only time they do feel able to talk about their own suffering is that when they're trying to talk, stop women from talking about theirs. In every other context, men and boys are discouraged from talking about their pain. Thinking in a new way about sex, gender and power, call it feminism or masculism or whatever the hell you like, as long as you do it, it can help men to process that pain. But it's easier just to blame women. As more and more women and girls and a growing number of male allies start speaking out against sexism and injustice, a curious thing is happening. Some people are complaining that speaking about prejudice is prejudice itself. Increasingly, before we talk about misogyny, women are asked to modify our language so that we don't hurt men's feelings. Don't say, men oppress women, that's sexism, and it's just as bad as any sexism women ever have to handle, and probably worse. Instead say, some men oppress women. Whatever you do, don't generalise because that's something men do, not all men, of course, just some men. This type of semantic squabbling is a very effective way of getting women to shut up. After all, most of us grew up learning that being a good girl was all about putting other people's feelings ahead of our own. We aren't supposed to say what we think if there's a chance it might upset somebody else or worse, make them angry with us. I see this used as a silencing technique across the social justice movements with which I've been associated. Black people are asked to consider the feelings of white people before they speak about their own experience. Gay and transsexual people are asked not to be too angry because it makes straight people feel uncomfortable. And so we start to stifle our speech with apologies, caveats and soothing sounds. We reassure our friends and loved ones that, of course, you're not one of those ones. You're not one of those racists or those homophobes or those men who hate women. What we don't say is, of course not all men hate women, but culture hates women and men who grow up in a sexist culture have a tendency to do and say sexist things, sometimes without meaning to. We aren't judging you for who you are, but that doesn't mean we're not asking you to change your behavior. What you feel about women in your heart is actually of less immediate importance than how you treat them on a daily basis. You can be the gentlest, sweetest man in the world and still benefit from sexism and still hesitate to speak up when you see women hurt and discriminated against. And that is how oppression works. Thousands of otherwise decent people are persuaded to go along with an unfair system because changing it seems like too much bother. The appropriate response when somebody demands a change in that system is to listen rather than turn away or yell, as a child might, that it's not your fault. Of course, it's not your fault. I'm sure you're lovely. That doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to do something about it. Society tends to discourage us from thinking structurally. Pondering upsetting things like poverty, racism and sexism as part of a larger architecture of violence does not come easy in a culture that prefers that we all see ourselves as free-acting individuals, but the body politic is riddled with bigotry like an infection. You can't see it or touch it until it breaks out on the skin, but it's there under the surface, bursting and separating in individual wounds that suggest something else is going on there. Your friend is raped by another friend at a party. Your colleague has to leave work because she can't afford full-time childcare. Your daughter comes home sobbing that she feels fat and refuses to eat dinner. It's simpler and less scary to imagine all of these things as individual, unrelated experiences rather than part of a structure of sexism that infects everybody, even you. It's relatively easy to hold more than one idea in the human brain at a time. It's a large complex organ and it has room for many seasons worth of trashy TV plotlines and the phone number of the ex-lover you really shouldn't be calling after six shots of vodka. If the brain couldn't handle big structural ideas at the same time as small personal ones, we would never have made it down from the trees and built things like cities and cinemas. It should not, therefore, be as difficult as it is to explain to the average human male that while you, individual man, going about your daily business, eating crisps and playing Bioshock, may not hate and hurt women, men as a group, men as a structure, do hate women. I do not believe that the majority of men are too stupid to understand this distinction. And if they are, we really need to step up our efforts to stop them running almost every global government. (laughs) Somehow it is t- <laughs> Thanks. Somehow it is still hard to talk to men about sexism without meeting a wall of defensiveness that shades into outright hostility or even violence. Anger is an entirely appropriate response to learning that you're implicated in a system that oppresses women, but the solution isn't to direct that anger back at women. The solution isn't to shut down debate by accusing us of reverse sexism, as if that will somehow balance out the problem and stop you feeling so uncomfortable. Sexism should be uncomfortable. It is painful and enraging to be on the receiving end of misogynist attacks, and it is also painful to watch them happen and to know that you are implicated even though you never chose to be. You are supposed to react when you're told that as a group you're a member of, you is actively fucking over other human beings, in the same way that you're supposed to react when a doctor hammers your knee to test the nerves. If it doesn't hurt, something is horribly wrong. Saying that all men are implicated in a culture of sexism, all men, not just some men, may sound like an accusation. In fact, it is a challenge. You, individual man with your individual dreams and desires, did not ask to be born into a world where being a boy gave you social and sexual advantages over girls. You don't want to live in a world where women get raped and then told they provoked it in a court of law. Where women's work is poorly paid or unpaid, where we are called sluts and whores for demanding simple sexual equality, you did not choose any of this. What you do get to choose right now is what happens next. You can choose as a man to help create a fairer world for women and for men too. You can choose to challenge misogyny and sexual violence wherever you see them. You can choose to take risks and spend energy supporting women, promoting women, treating the women in your life as true equals. You can choose to stand up and say no. And every day more men and boys are making that choice. The question is, will you be one of them? Now.
0: (laughs) Wonderful, thank you. A rousing start to our conversation and as Laurie Laurie said, we're going to have a bit of Q&A here. Mm -hmm. We're also going to open the mics early for audience questions. So start thinking about what you'd like to ask Laurie. My first question is on this idea of Lost Boys, Mm -hmm. which is the title of today's talk and the title of the chapter that you just read from. Who to you are the Lost Boys?
1: Well, the Lost Boys is this reference to Peter Pan. For Mm. Anybody anybody not familiar with Peter Pan, even the Disney film? Come on, everybody knows it. Yes, okay. I'm going (laughs) to take that silence as agreement, as the (laughs) internet teaches us. Um, uh, So the idea of Lost Boys is uh, people trapped in this sort of eternal, nervous, childish state. Unable to move on to what is being sold, still sold to men as the, the appropriate sort of adulthood, and angry about it, trapped in this never neverland of rage. And um, I call it Lost Boys because it it's sort of it's about sympathy as well. You see a lot of a lot of young people. In general, I've seen over the past you know, six or seven years now that I've been writing, which has more or less coincided with uh, the economic crisis uh, since the crash of 2008, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of young people, and particularly young men, uh, lose their way, and lose their way within uh, the economic system, lose their way within the job market, and that has been reflected in gender and power relations. There is a sense of loss of power And lots of privilege for men as well. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, particularly people around my age, I'm in my late 20s, are thinking, wow, well, not only is the economy going to hell and not only am I not moving on in that way, the basic privileges that I grew up expecting without even really knowing I was expecting them uh, over women and uh, as a man, they're being taken away from me as well. And so it's, and it's easier to get angry at, at feminists and get angry at individual people on the internet than it is to, you know, take down the government, which is generally...
0: <laughs> so how can these lost boys find themselves
1: oh, or find goodness. a way? Um, well, I mean, see my previous statement, really, mm. in some ways. But, but look... Um, I think one of the first most important things to do is understand that uh, feminism is about empowering everyone, ultimately. I think feminism offers an enormous opportunity to men as well as to women to think in a different way about what it means to be a human being. I think... Ideas about masculinity are incredibly constricting and limiting for men as well. And the fact that the old models of patriarchal power are becoming less and less accessible for men is a really important opportunity to junk those models and mm-hmm. to say, look, how can, we, how can we live in a different way? How can we exist in a different way? Because that stuff's not working. It's just not working for most people. Most people are made miserable mm-hmm. by this ideal of violent masculinity that they are held up to. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm talking in too theoretical a way. It's been a very long week, <laughs> no, it's and I'm fine. just going to start saying patriarchy, patriarchy, <laughs> patriarchy like a robot until somebody. Anyway, next question. Maybe we can get a chat going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Patriarchal no, if you, say, if you say it waves. More, it's like
1: Beetlejuice. If you say it more than three times, patriarchy comes out of the mirror <laughs> and tweets at you. <laughs> Um, as you say, feminism
0: is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Why do you think men and conversations about men haven't been very present in the feminist movement?
1: Well, look, for good reason. Partly because uh, it's one of the few places where we can have a conversation without men interrupting us mm. all the time. And I think that is, uh, <laughs> that's valid. Look, I mean, honestly, look, look. How many times have you been to a talk where two women are sitting on stage talking about something that is unrelated to gender issues, ever? Guys, no. Right? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Look, we're only allowed to talk amongst ourselves and be respected on a political stage when it is when we're talking about gender, and it's really it's refreshing to have that conversation. And feminism is called feminism for a reason, is because it starts with women's issues and it recognizes that women, everybody is oppressed by gender, women are the most oppressed, Mm. right? And that has to be understood and recognized. Um, And a lot of people, and a lot of people doing feminist work, will say quite rightly when men come to them and say, like, oh, I've got a problem and I need to talk to you about my problem, which is kind of the substance of quite a lot of emails I get. And it's like, oh God, I file them away and I try and reply. But a lot of people <laughs> who get those emails are like, this is not my job. I don't have time for this. Please go and sort this out by yourselves. And that's okay. Uh, that's fine. But for me, like, technically speaking, it is my job. Like as a feminist writer and as an uh, activist in, in various forms of... well. I'm mainly right on the internet. Who am I kidding? That's not the internet. That's not the internet. It's really on paper. It's real. Um, You don't know what's in it, though. It's just pictures of dicks. I just just, just carry it around to make me look clever. When things get a bit rough, just flick through. everywhere. Yeah. But look... I completely forgot what we're saying. But yeah, look, as somebody who works in in that area, I think it actually is my job to respond to some of these. And And I have found more and more over the past few years that I've been contacted by men asking me questions and saying and some of them, you know, I get contacted contacted by a lot of guys telling me where, various ways in which I should be raped and dismembered and sending bomb threats to my house. And But I also get contacted by guys, it's almost like an agony aunt thing, saying like I think I'm a feminist, will it go away? <laughs> <laughs> I've got this funny rash. It's like no, it will never go away. But hopefully. and But yeah, it's uh, a, Feminism does provide an opportunity for men to talk about their issues and men to talk about the issues of masculinity. Because masculinity is the one thing, and and men's issues, sort of the issues of gender are the one thing that men are not allowed to speak on and instantly Mm -hmm. be experts. And I think that's okay. I think men coming into feminist space without automatically being, uh, the assumption being that they will be the experts and they will be taking over the space is, is sort of rule one. It's the first rule of feminist (laughs) club for guys. It's like, you know, the test of how good an ally you're going to be is the way that you behave the first time you come into feminist space. Because for a lot of guys, saying to them like, oh my goodness, maybe maybe you're not going to be in control and considered to be the expert in this discussion, it's impossible to voice that to men without them hearing you say, we hate you, we want you to shut up right now. It's like, no, no, we just want you to start off by listening. Mm. That's all.
0: Why do you think it is so hard for straight white men to grasp the concept of privilege?
1: Oh my goodness! I I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think there is a certain. I don't think the concept of privilege is hard. Mm. I don't think it's hard. And I think if it, like I mean like I said, look if it, if if it is that if straight white guys are that stupid that en masse they cannot understand the simple distinction between privilege and power, privilege being social advantage that you get because of what you are rather than who you are, power being objective power, if if that distinction is too hard for you to understand, maybe you should not be running the world, (laughs) like basically, but um, I think there is there is willful ignorance. Mm. I think people don't want to understand the difference between privilege and power because maybe then they would have to acknowledge it and have a conversation about it, you know. And at the same time, it, it, it's just like, we don't understand. Yeah, they, they do. They do <laughs> understand. They're just, yeah.
0: And you talk about that being a very painful process yeah. for men and for anyone who comes to grasp it.
1: Yeah, I think all consciousness raising is painful. It's really painful. And uh, it's painful when I... I've been through it myself, it's painful. I don't think anybody falls out of the womb mm-hmm. with perfect politics. <laughs> Nobody does. And, and I think yeah, this is this delusion on the left that everybody starts out, you know, and that anybody can start out having the right, write opinions about anything. Politics is a process of growing and changing, and it's always painful, especially if you're, if you're confronted with your own complicity. Like, you know, as a white person, being confronted with your own complicity and structural racism is really horrible, and it makes me really uncomfortable, and I don't want to think about it, because it's really, it's really bad, it makes me feel horrible. But you know what's more uncomfortable? It racism. <laughs> like, you know, uh, dealing with your own, dealing with your complicity in structures of sexism in, and misogyny, similarly, is really uncomfortable and it's painful and you have to rethink again about your own conceptions of gender and what you may have done in the past. But experiencing sexism is worse than that. Mm. And it's something that, again, we talk about um, Guys, there's, there's this idea of men as being like strong and, you know, resilient and not letting anything get to them. But like these, these things seem to be just far too painful for men to cope with right now. And I think that's a shame. <laughs> basically.
0: I think it's a shame too. Uh, One of the things you touched on in your talk is the need for structural change Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, in our society we do tend to look at incidents of misogyny or violence very independently. Mm -hmm. Why are we too timid or unable to look at the structural problems? Oh, look, there's a couple of reasons for that.
1: Um... Well, there are lots of reasons mm. for that. There are, in fact, structural reasons and, for that. And complex, complex structural reasons. structural reasons, <laughs> which are not tweetable. But, um, but if you read my book, Price to Only... Tw- no, no, which is longer one. than a tweet <laughs> and very <laughs> worthwhile. It's, it's, it's made up of several hundred tweets, basically, because um, the internet has destroyed my ability to think in a structural way. That doesn't actually happen. People will tell you that that happens, that the internet it destroys your ability to think structurally. I don't think that's the case at all. But... Look, <laughs> one of the reasons, as a journalist, I think, one of the simple reasons that we are encouraged not to think about instances of misogyny and, and hate crimes as structural is, this is not a, as maybe as interesting, but it is, is a simple fact that individual instances of misogyny are easier to report on and they're easier to write about and they're more sensational to write about. I, I saw... Um, so the other day there was a campaign and, and the people behind that campaign I think are here today. They came to the earlier talk that I did with uh, Clementine Ford and other people. And um, they, the, what happened was a, a girl was slut-shamed on Tinder and all these misogynist attacks went right around the internet. And I was reading about this and I was reading um, the news reports about this in the Australian media and the first one I was sent to whoever had put the title on that news report had chosen to take out of context a Facebook comment that somebody has left. So the title of the news report was, I think I'm quoting here, raping feminists is so much fun because they're nice and tight, or something like that. I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 thank you for that. Yeah, it was, and that was the title of the news report. I was like, that's, that's not actually news is it though that's just that's misogynist titillation and it is there is a culture of um, i'm trying so has anybody seen mean girls yeah yeah okay so you know how in how uh, she's trying to make fetch happen in you girls and she keeps trying to make it's like don't stop making fetch happen it's never going to happen i'm trying to make news economy of misogyny happen and I have to accept that it's probably never going to happen but I'm trying anyway we have a news economy of misogyny and uh, that's one of the reasons that we don't want to think structurally about these problems but I think thinking about sexism as structural and thinking about sexism and gender issues as an economic problem is terrifically frightening because it means that we have to, it makes us feel less in control. Mm -hmm. It makes us feel less in control of a, it's scarier to think about a system that is oppressing you. It's scarier to think that there are huge economic forces outside any one individual person's control that are contributing to this culture, and it's easier to just punch down, mm. honestly. It's the same reason where it's easier to attack individual women and individual feminists than it is to get angry at society.
0: Mm. And you talk about in your book and in other places as well how you think feminism's gone as far as it can without big structural change mm. happening.
1: In many ways, yes. Um, Maybe that's wishful thinking, mm. because um, I think there is there is still a lot of basic stuff that feminism needs to achieve within the paradigm of uh, current, of neoliberal... I really need to learn to say the word neoliberal capitalism, I'm sorry. <laughs> Neoliberalism. I or, d- or we uh, need within, a catchy yeah, acronym that, or something. Yeah, like <laughs> money culture, I don't know. <laughs> um, within, the cap- within the paradigm of let's go for free market economics, shall we? That's easier to say, um, that we have um i think there are there is still more to do but ultimately okay let me see how i can explain this briefly the system that we have and the system that Enables capitalism to continue as it has is predicated on an incredible amount of unpaid and underpaid work done by women. Women as carers, women as people who raise and bear children and the fact that that work is unvalued or undervalued and the fact that that work needs to continue to be done and to be done without complaint is the economic basis for women's oppression within the system and has been for many thousands of centuries. This is the basis for women's physical oppression, for attacks on abortion rights, for rape and slut shaming the economic basis for sexual control of women. And this is the real root of uh, the, way we underst- the way we have to understand sexism today. Um, that's the brief uh, explanation. <laughs> In your book,
0: you talk often of revolution, mm-hmm. mutiny, ripping things down, starting
1: again. Yeah. What does a revolution look like to you? Um, look, I, and I, how do we get started? Partly, this is because I have a—I never got the career as a song lyrics writer that as I wanted to. Like, I always wanted to be in a band, but I was never popular enough at school. So I can never, but, but look, um, one of the reasons I keep using the word revolution is because it's provocative and because it asks for big sweeping social change. But one of the reasons I use the word mutiny sometimes is that I think mutiny can be more personal. And in the 60s, people used to... used to talk about revolution in the head and revolution starting within the individual human being. And I think in many ways that was and still is a cop-out because if revolution stays in the head, then it doesn't have to go out onto the streets and challenge the system, right? But on the other hand, um, feminist writer Shilamith Firestone, who passed away a few years ago, said um, a revolutionary in every bedroom would certainly shake up the status quo. And... (laughs) Because so much of women's oppression and men's gender oppression too takes place on such an intimate, personal scale, because it's about relationships, because it's about sex and sexuality and intimate violence and partner violence and um, the lessons that we grow up with, dealing with... Mutiny on an individual level actually is important. Sexism reproduces itself and a culture of misogyny reproduces itself on an individual level um, because it is a process of cultural subjugation as well as a set of laws. Um, another way to think about this is, um, so look, we have a lot of legal change. Over the past 40 years, a great many legal changes have been implicated, have been I'm so sorry. A great many legal changes have been pushed through, which mean that on paper, women just about have equality to men within the current system. You know, we have the equal right to be oppressed at work, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what it is, right? And so we've won. We can all work in a call centre, hooray, for neoliberalism, liberal, liberal patriarchy. Um, <laughs> but um, this, And uh, this is both a challenge and a opportunity, because there aren't many specific legal changes that we can ask for. There are some. We can ask for huge sweeping changes to the law on uh, reproductive rights and abortion rights. We can ask for changes to the codes on domestic violence, on rape. There are changes, but there aren't so many huge legal changes we can ask for to change the status of women as second-class citizens and the oppression of men in the world. Uh, but the good thing is that we don't have to sit around asking for legal change. <laughs> we can just do it. We can do it on a cultural level, and that is what gives me so much hope when I look at what's happening online, when I look at conversations that, that are happening, when I look at, God, how many fucking people have turned up today? <laughs> you know? Um it's, I, think it's, I think it's really hopeful. And I'm, I use the word mutiny because um, I'm really into pirates. Um, <laughs> I'm really into pirates. But also, it's about taking control of your own ship. It's about getting rid of the captain in the head and taking control of your own ship, what, however you identify, whatever your gender identity is. And that's why I think mutiny and revolution can go together.
2: Hmm.
1: So that's it. Let's talk about
0: rage. (laughs) You've written that if anything can save us, it's Mm -hmm. the rage of women and Mm -hmm. girls. What do you mean by this?
1: Well, look, um, I get away with being angrier than I think quite a lot of feminist writers in the public eye because I'm physically really tiny and white. (laughs) And, like, I don't know, like, all of those things. Um, But... Women are expected to not be angry first and foremost and women and any oppressed group is expected to take into account the feelings of the oppressing group first before we speak about our issues and before we speak about structural power and structural violence. And I think there is a broad feminist movement happening right now which is saying fuck it and saying um, that we're not prepared to no longer be angry and no longer express what we're really feeling. And women's rage is something that has scared men for many, many centuries. And you know, the, the image of the angry woman, it's, it crops up in, in, in horror so much. So many of our <laughs> stories are about angry women. You look right back through culture. Um, Fear of women's rage is, uh, is so prevalent in society because women's rage is powerful when it is collectivised, um, just as any oppre- the rage of any oppressed group is powerful when it is collectivised. And I think the first step is women ourselves learning not to fear our own rage and learning not to fear our own anger um, and that being angry is a legitimate re- reaction to all the bullshit that's going on in society. And... Um, I want to say uh, I know that we have spent quite a lot of uh, this talk talking about women when uh, a lot of people came to a talk that was meant to be about men. (laughs) And um, I want to say get used to that.
0: (laughs) And, of course, one of the ways that men often undermine women is by calling them mad, telling them to calm down, crazy. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, no. No, why would I do that? <laughs> Everything is awful. Why is anybody calm? It's, it's like, it, maybe that will be the title of my next book, <laughs> And it'll just be pictures of dicks. <laughs> or it could be an Agony Aunt book yeah. for male feminists, emerging male feminists. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing, I don't know if you have this T-shirt, but it's gone all over the US and the UK, this bloody keep calm and carry on T-shirt. <laughs> and that's one of the most awful pieces of political positioning I've, never, I've ever seen seen. Like that is exactly the least appropriate response to anything that's going on in culture and in <laughs> politics right now. I refuse to keep calm, I refuse to carry on. It's the last thing we should be doing. Mm. But um, that's more of a general statement than a deep theory about gender, which I think is... <laughs> <what> <laughs> Um, I'm about to open up for audience questions. So if you do have
0: a question, there's a microphone here and here. So just make your way down there now. I do just, just want to ask you about the Occupy movement, which you mm-hmm. were very deeply involved in, and you wrote about it extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you see and learn during the Occupy movement?
1: Oh God. Um, well, first I want to say I was I was not involved in the Occupy movement as such. I was I reported you were on there. it as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just like it sounds like I did a load of activist work, mm-hmm. which I just didn't do and I can't take credit for. But uh, traveling around and following following Occupy, I learned two things. I had um, my hope reaffirmed that people working together can create change very fast and can create a mood of change. And all it needs is the space for people to come together and talk about how the world can be different to create that opportunity for change. And the second thing I learned is how fucking fast people will crack down on that. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things I saw most of, you know, it wasn't just following around the Occupy movement and seeing their lovely soup kitchens, which they had, and looking at the libraries, which they brought in, people donating food. It was then, you know, a few days le- later, seeing the library at Wall Street just loaded into the back of a van and crunched up in the, ma- in the back of a digger. It was seeing, you know, young people have their hands broken, I, young uh, girl, uh, who was you know, like having an epileptic seizure right in front of me with her hands cuffed behind her back, seeing the police just beating and clubbing and gassing people and then saying, oh, you weren't organised anyway. What are you doing? You've gone. Why have the Occupy movement gone? God, quitters. And it's like I literally saw the police tear apart that camp. And I'm sure they would have lasted a lot longer had that not happened. Um, I, I learned just how threatening different ideas can be and um, that was a hard lesson mm-hmm. for a lot of people, particularly a lot of people who joined the Occupy movements and, and followed the Occupy movements who had not previously been involved in politics. And I think a uh, process of recovery is still happening. Um, but I hope that, I mean, I, I have no doubt that the, we will see different movements emerge in the next few years along those lines. I don't see any way they cannot happen, mm. honestly.
0: So, do you think Occupy has had a lasting impact? Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, it's okay to say the word capitalism now. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It has changed the conversation in the United States. Mm. Um, and it has changed the conversation about economic justice around the world. And uh, the fact that that was, that it quickly became apparent that, that that was what was happening was one of the reasons, I believe, that this was shut down so fast. Because it was so threatening. Yeah, it's so threatening. And you're seeing in Europe, the traditional centre-left and centre-right mobilise against people's movements both mm. within and outside uh, the traditional parliamentary, uh, parliamentary process. You know, Syriza, Podemos, in the UK we've got Jeremy Corbyn who's like this old leftist uh, is suddenly emerging to take control of the Labour Party and <laughs> everybody is losing their shit over this. It's, it's, It's hilarious if it weren't, it would be hilarious if it weren't so depressing seeing them literally organising a purge of members so this guy doesn't get involved and his ideas aren't actually that radical. I mean, he's not like calling for armed revolution right now. He's suggesting a small increase in the top rate of tax upon the super rich. This is not like lamppost territory (laughs) we're talking about. But these ideas are so threatening, they are just clamped down on Mm -hmm. instantly and I think we need to get, it's a lesson in how resilient we're going to have to be. In the next few years.
2: Mm.
1: Great. We might go to Mike too for the first question. Thank you. What do you think of gender neutrality? What do you mean by gender neutrality? So, I have a teenager, Mm -hmm. and apparently a friend's
0: teenager has declared herself gender neutral. Mm -hmm. And I read parenting kids so that they are gender neutral.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't really know what gender neutrality means but I wonder if there's a movement to not identify with a sex what impact that has on
0: being
1: a feminist or being a male in a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. Okay so thank you for the question. Uh, my an- I want to say that my answer on this will be quite I guess, specific. And I can't speak for the whole queer movement. I don't think there is a definitive answer on on this one. But look, I I identify as genderqueer myself. I am not so super public about that, but I'm going to start to be more so soon, like, yay, coming out in front of hundreds of people. (laughs) Can I have a little round of applause? (laughs) Than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, but uh, I have long sort of struggled with where uh, the genderqueer and trans movement fits into uh, into feminism, and uh, where certainly where my own feminism fits into being uh, being genderqueer. And I think. It, one of the important things is decoupling sex, class, and decoupling sex from identity in that way. Um, which is, look, for various reasons, I consider trans feminism and uh, women who are the presence of women who are transsexual in particular to be not just you know appropriate in the feminist movement, but vital to it. But I also think that ceasing to think of human identity as binary is. Really, is really radical and really important. And I think for a lot of people who are gender queer, they maybe wish that it wasn't so radical and important. They would just rather like be left to get on with their own thing and be gender neutral. And I hope that in the future that that will be possible. But at the moment. Um, gender neutrality and being uh, being genderqueer or agender or however you want to identify i think that is that certainly has a place both within feminism and within um a radical discussion of masculinity decoupling the notion of uh, of masculinity from being being assigned male at birth and again like I'm not in this talk I'm using the words when I say men and women I'm talking about political categories I'm not talking about forever two categories of human being because apart from anything else that's just biologically wrong there aren't there aren't just two sexes there are a significant you know small proportion of people who biologically don't fit into those categories never mind in terms of identity this is could be a really long conversation between you and me. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I want to, like, let somebody else ask a question, but thank you for that opportunity. Yay. Um, so I'll go to mic
0: one, and I'll just say there's a queue of men lining up to ask Ooh. you questions. I'd love to encourage some more women. Mic number yeah. two is open. Please take your chances, but mic one now, thanks.
4: I, I'd just like to ask, um, as a... <coughs> sorry. You've mentioned masculinity and the oppressiveness of masculinity. Mm -hmm. Um, Sports plays a huge role in our society culturally. Yep. A male who doesn't identify as even watching a sporting code can be kind of oppressed by that. And um, in contrast to that, women's sports is totally underrepresented Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to the airplay that it gets worldwide. Do you think that um, sports in general have a role to play in the uh, over-masculine society that we have? And would we be better off seeing um, women's sports to be more represented in that same sphere to give a bit of a balance? Would that, would that empower women as, it, as maybe men feel empowered by, by that cultural identity?
1: God, this is a really interesting question. Mm, um, I bet didn't think you were going to be asked a question about sport today. No, no and I, I'm completely the wrong person to ask <laughs> this question because, like, as you can see, I'm super sporty. I'm like, like, no, look, I, I've always been a nerdy, weedy goth and I I hated school sports so much and, like, one of my the best bits about leaving school was never having to do that again and, you know, I still have flashbacks. It was awful. I can't imagine how much more awful it was for you know i went to a posh british school and the guys that, that i knew well enough to speak to at school they would come in from the rugby field with like broken noses broken arms and this was considered like part of education and it's rather than like sort of brutal and fascist and <laughs> terribly but look so i'm like i'm i'm real i have real i have a really hard time talking about organised sport in, in a positive way like I do yoga to a heavy metal soundtrack But like, and I think if you ask my sister is a competitive climber and uh, my cousin is on the UK netball team and I sort of want to hand this question over to them I like, guess if I could
4: narrow it down yeah, go on. do you have a view um, about I guess the contribution of that negative um, kind of masculinity that sports has. Do you believe that it contributes negatively given that a lot of the younger generation idealise these sports people and they're massively over, overrepresented in media and in our, in our culture?
1: Well, look, it certainly seems to me from the outside that, that within... Uh, sporting the sporting world, like you know, football, for example, or you know these massively overplayed football players, that they are that culture is somehow like ten years behind the rest of discussion. Like, for, <laughs> example, no, for example, it's really really hard for football players to come out, right? Whereas within other you know other areas, other professionals find it much easier to come out. There's still a huge problem with racism uh, in in sports, uh, where you know obviously there's a problem with racism everywhere, but it's the things you hear coming out of sports reporting are different, but again, like, look, I'm I'm going to have to honestly pass mm. on this, dude, because I'm too I'm lit, I'm too prejudiced. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not the kind like never let me let never let it be said that I do not recognise when I'm just too bitter and twisted with rage. <laughs> <laughs> to, like, to, give an, to give an honest answer That's on a question, you. You <laughs> thank you. I think it answered beautifully.
0: We'll go to
3: um, Mike too. Hello, thank you so much for data. it's been amazing. Um, Look, I just want to talk about rage because I think women, that PMS and that rage issue Mm -hmm. is massive. Like, I've never taken the pill because I've learnt my system myself. But women are still pushed to take the pill to basically, you know, uh, minimise their libido, minimise their PMS raging. Oh, you can't be angry, you can't be sad, you have to be neutral. And it's even going back to what that um, mum was talking about with her children. Mm-hmm. So are girls and boys being brought up to believe that we can't be emotional, we can't have rage, we can't have anger, and that's really still... It's like a reverse of what all these women fought for, that we when women were once arrested for having bikinis on the beach, women yep. were arrested for, you know, um, possibly mm-hmm. being out at night because they thought of thought of as a woman of the night, obviously a mm-hmm. sex worker. So is this still predominant? And secondly... When boys try to date you on social media now, why do they always send a dick pic? <laughs> Maybe
1: start with the second oh question. <laughs> um, the second... Oh, look. Um, look I'm gonna, has anybody ever seen a site called rapemydickpic.com? Yes. It's so good. Critique, like, my, critique dick pic. my dick pic. Yep. And it, it's it treats them as art. But, God, I don't, <laughs> look, I, I don't know why people find those... Think that that is what people want. I think it's just a sort of... I think it's using... Technology to do a very basic thing that human beings maybe did before there was even language. It's like mine is biggest. <laughs> See, I will tweet a picture of it. But actually, that was that was that was reverse sexist of me, and uh, I, I will stop that. But, um, hashtag not all men. Hashtag
3: not all
1: dick pics. Um, it's but quite entertaining.
3: But it's I, just, entertaining. I mean, I'm just, I've got a psych degree, and I'm still trying to work out exactly what the momentum is behind it.
1: But. I'm trying to work out how they. Do the angles
3: actually?
1: <laughs> it's like, literally, literally. Where are you holding that camera? It's like, <laughs> They've got like the lightning going, the torch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, look, I think yeah, rage is pathologized and it's pathologized within our culture in general, um, and uh, not just for women. Um, I think the the more you the more you look like uh, say one of the average members of parliament, the more you look like the white, straight, cisgender, middle class. Uh, English speaking dude in your mid-40s and above, the more angry you're allowed to be without it being considered crazy. Mm. And um, there's a whole other conversation we can have about mental health diagnoses, yeah, about the, the, poli- yeah. the politicisation of mental health and about uh, how that deviates from real suffering. But uh, there probably isn't time to get mm. that. Um, I, I will send you, if you tweet at me, an article I wrote on it on the internet. <laughs> All
0: right, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Is there a question at mic number one?
2: Uh, it's, firstly, I'm not really into sports, so <laughs> I don't even have a team. It's about, um, I guess, culture and the, the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we've, uh, I went to your, your last session this morning, and everything's happening now and at the cold face, and we need people like you to fight now against what's happening now with the adults now. But mm-hmm. what I'm really concerned about are things like the fairy tales that we read our kids, yep. the blue-pink dichotomy. The, the I mean, and you've got to give Marvel credit because they are starting to actively try and create new female heroes, but you go and watch the last Marvel movie and there's, like, ten dudes and one chick and she still needs to be rescued and have a kiss. Yep. So it's like, <laughs> let's... If we go to the stories we're telling our kids and, and in terms of the culture, how important is actually just is it changing it for the next generation and, and starting to tell stories where women don't need to be rescued, where men don't need to be heroes?
1: Thank you for this gift of a question Thank you.
3: Um,
1: Yeah, I think it is it is vital that we tell different kinds of stories. Um, one of the reasons for this is look uh, men grow up, and particularly white men grow up, learning that they're the heroes of their own stories and watching sto- and watching and reading stories where all different kinds of people who look like them are allowed to have adventures and they're allowed to imagine themselves in all kinds of situations. Uh, women and people of colour are taught to empathise with and imagine themselves in the roles of those white men. Uh, men, particularly white men growing up, are never... Encouraged and empathize, to empathize with female heroes or heroes of color, which is where you come back to, and I'm going to be like, hey, I'm a nerd. Um, but this is where you come back to the huge argument over whether there was going to be a, a female Doctor Who, the assumption being that men can never empathize with a female Doctor Who, whereas women can, of course, empathize with a male Doctor Who. I think... Um, something and in geek culture and in a lot of culture around creating stories right now there is a huge um, huge amount of anger over the fact that those stories are starting to change Um, we don't have equal representation in writers rooms or in you know people who win prizes for writing and, and for novels and stuff that's being put out there but because it's becoming a little bit more diverse there is a huge huge backlash and people are getting angry like people are so angry about the female Ghostbusters film <laughs> they're so gross about that my god and it's like oh people are saying things like oh a female Ghostbusters film you've just ruined my entire childhood and it's like wow <laughs> like, your entire childhood was based on this very flimsy fragile idea <laughs> that four men could hunt ghosts like that I really I really feel for you dude if this is, this is your identity but yeah I'm um, sort of this is not a plug because this might not work out but I'm I'm trying to start writing like fiction and stuff myself because I think it's politically important and probably it's not going to work out because I'm way too political for it. I'm just going to be like, do you see the violence and the sexism? And then they fought the sexism and, and it was fantastic. <laughs> that's, going be, like, that's going to be basically my novel. <laughs> um, so it might not be very good. But like, I, something really exciting is happening now though is because the people who grew up on the internet and grew up with LiveJournal and uh, all different kinds of understandings of what diversity was, and Are just now starting to get power in Hollywood and writers' rooms, and it's just now starting to change. So I think you'll see something. I'm I'm really interested to see what's going to happen when the kids who grow up watching cartoons now uh, get to about my age. And I'm really proud of myself for getting through that whole question without descending into a rant about Steven Universe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good, and you should all watch it. It's so gay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: probably have time for one last question. We'll take it from over there. Um, I grew up in regional Australia. I've got two younger brothers. They're in their 20s. They're just really regular guys. They mm-hmm. work trades. They play footy on the
1: weekends. They go to the pub. My question is around creating relatable conversation that isn't too cerebral, that's not too wrapped up in the rhetoric of some really big ideas mm-hmm. when... My brothers are just the kind of guys who engage with mainstream media. So how do we start to create relatable conversation, and maybe relatable is a bit of a loaded Mm -hmm. word as well, but you know, a a conversation that for them they're unconscious of their privilege and they have
3: no reason to engage with it because it's not in front of them. So how do we start to talk about them, have those conversations with Mm -hmm. guys who are at the pub I guess?
1: Okay, thank you. Look, I think part of the answer to this relates to the previous question and it relates to a general change in culture and people... You know, I think for all that I love reading feminist theory, I think Mad Max did a lot... as much good as any massive book of feminist propaganda, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, And it's about, you know, asking people to live in a world where there is space for women's stories too. But I sort of want to... I wanted to to sort of end with this anyway but it's, it's a challenge to the guys in the room basically and, and the male assigned people in the room because one of the ways to get men to listen to arguments about feminism and about gender equality and masculinity sadly at the moment is to have a man say it and to have uh, the real tests of who you are as a feminist ally and as a feminist man is how you behave and how you talk about gender when, men are not, when women are not in the room and how men talk about gender to each other and talk about their own experience. And I would say, like, my challenge to the men in the room is to just try for a while, maybe, let's say for two weeks, try having one conversation with another guy about gender or feminism or masculinity or something like that every day. Just try for a while and see what happens. And I'm not responsible legally for for any negative consequences that may ensue. But that's a challenge anyway. So, thank you. That's a wonderful challenge.
0: And I hope all the men in the room do take up that challenge and all the women in the room hold them accountable for taking it up. <laughs> um, our time here has ended. Laurie will be signing books in the foyer now, pretty much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank, thank you. you so much for being a part of it. Please thank, you, thank Laurie Penny. Thank
1: you.